So I think the danger of the U.S. foreign policy is that we turn too unilateral or become too impatient, fail to realize that uh, it's actually through attracting others into alliances that we're going to be successful. And that, I think, is why soft power is going to be an important component of U.S. foreign policy in the future. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Gina Lim, and I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Ahn. Beginning in the 1980s, the term soft power appeared alongside hard power, rising into prominence during the Cold War. Since then, it has evolved both in its component in discussion of power and in regard to hard power. In order to explore the modern use of soft power and its relevance in current conflicts and policies today, Joining us today is Professor Joseph Nye, who coined the term itself. Professor Joseph Nye is a Distinguished Service Professor at Harvard University and former Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He has served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and Deputy Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, Science, and Technology. His most recent books include Presidential Leadership and the Creation of the American Era, and Do Morals Matter? President's and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. And we hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you, Professor Nye, for joining us on the Hopkins Podcast of Foreign Affairs today. It's my pleasure. So you introduced the term soft power in the 1980s, and it has since become widely relevant in discussing international relations. So to begin our discussions, What does soft power actually mean? Well, power is the ability to affect others to get the things you want. And you can basically do it three ways. You can do it through coercion or threats. Uh, You can do it through payments. uh, Or you can do it through attraction. And the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment is soft power. Right. And what did you see in the final decade of the Cold War that led you to introduce the term soft power? Well, I was interested in the question that had become quite popular in the late 80s about whether the United States was in decline. Paul Kennedy wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, uh, which argued that the U.S. was in decline. I didn't think so. And as I was trying to refute that uh, declinist hypothesis, I looked at American military power and I looked at American economic power and I said, there's still something missing, which is the ability of the United States to attract others and to set the agenda for others. And uh, that's what led me to this third category of power that I wound up calling soft power. And... Leading on to that, from the 1980s, then, how has the concept of soft power evolved to fit the status quo? And what has contributed to its changes in the recent years? Well, the concept was published in a book in 1989, Bound to Lead. And then I wrote an article about it in 1990 in Foreign uh, Policy. Uh, And it started out primarily as as an academic uh, concept 
which is what it was intended to be. But then it began to be picked up during the 90s. The Europeans in particular saw the European Union as a soft power. Uh, and more people started referring to soft power. Um, and uh, so it became, uh, it became a concept that was broadly used not just for analytical purposes, but also for descriptive political purposes. And uh, probably the most dramatic was, uh, in my mind, was when Hu Jintao, the Chinese uh, uh, president, told the 17th Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in 2007 that China needed to increase its soft power. Uh, and the, the concept has been used a good deal by different countries since then. Um, but it's interesting to see how what originally started out as a analytic exercise it, as I sat at the kitchen table um, trying to write a book eventually became a concept that was being coming out of the mouths of some of the most powerful politicians in the world. And when you describe soft power, um, it's differentiated from the alternative, which is hard power. Now, could you just give our listeners a brief overview of how soft power is different from hard power? And is there a relationship that exists between soft and hard power? Yes, very definitely. Um, it, soft power, um, as I mentioned, is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion and payment. Um, traditionally, international relations scholars have focused very much on military power, uh, which is a form of coercion or it can be. Um, and they've also focused a good deal on economic power, the size of a country's GDP or trade and so forth. Um, and it was this feeling that, yes, those were extremely important, but they weren't everything that led to the development of the idea of soft power. But I never intended to argue that soft power was replacing hard power. Um, it, when we do our analyses of international relations or world politics, uh, we should always start with the hard power, the military and economic balance. But my problem with the realists who start there is that they stop there. So my argument is not that soft power replaces hard power, but that it supplements it. Because a number of people were misinterpreting what I uh, intended when I added the concept of soft power to our vocabulary in international relations, and sometimes interpreted as saying soft power is replacing hard power, uh, around uh, 2004, I think it was, I also coined the term smart power. And in the uh, introduction or preface to my book on soft power in 2004, I mentioned that it's the ability to combine and soft power and hard power successfully that, it, that constitutes smart power. And in that sense, uh, it's not always easy. Sometimes when a country uses force, um, it reduces its attractiveness. Um, and uh, on the other hand, if it uh, uh, just uses kind words, it may not have any effect. So the ability to combine 
hard and soft power effectively is smart power. And when countries are trying to develop a strategy in international relations, obviously they need smart power, the combination of hard and soft into a successful strategy. I explain this in some more detail in a book that I published in uh, 2010, uh, The Future of Power. And this is a great segue to what I wanted to ask you next, which is when we analyze countries, um, we usually see them relying on both a mixture of hard and smart, uh, not hard and soft power. Now, can countries, can certain countries rely on one more than the other? And if so, what factors underlie how countries determine which one of the two to rely on more? Well, if you're a small country and you don't have much hard power, uh, you're going to find it interesting to uh, try to develop more of your soft power. Um, uh, And there are small countries that take Norway, which has a population of 5 million or so, Singapore in Asia, which has a population of about 5 million. Uh, Both of them um, have done things which enhance their soft power. Norway, through its uh, international aid programs, where it spends uh, 1% of its gross domestic product on overseas development assistance, which adds to its attractiveness, or in the case of Singapore, by acting as an as a uh, hub for the region in terms of education and services. Um, But notice that in both those cases, even though they're small powers, which can never uh, challenge a superpower directly in hard power terms, they still maintain enough hard power to be able to mount some defense. Norway's a member of NATO, and Singapore has the position that it will invest in its military to the point where it becomes a porcupine, i.e. it will be very awkward for anyone that tries to swallow it. So uh, even small powers, which have an incentive to use soft power, um, need a degree of hard power. Uh, I suppose the only small power which doesn't need hard power is the Vatican, uh, where the Pope has a great deal of soft power, but the Swiss guards don't represent very much hard power. But most other countries need uh, to combine hard and soft power. And we talked a little bit earlier about how soft power has evolved since you coined the term in the 1980s. Now, has hard power also seen the same evolution over time, or is it a little more unchanging? Well, hard power obviously um, uh, changes uh, over history as you develop new technologies of weapon systems, for example. Uh, you develop new forms of hard power, and some countries may be more adept or more ahead of the curve on some of these new technologies, and that enhances their their advantages in hard power. You know, when we go from... Uh, uh, horse-born raiders of Genghis Khan to uh, uh, the idea of of firearms um, and firearms overwhelming castle walls with cannons, so forth. I mean, all these, there's a long history of changes in military technology, uh, changing which 
country comes out with the greatest amount of hard power. I suppose people might say in the 20th century, the American development of the atomic bomb uh, gave us a leg up on hard power uh, for a while, but it didn't take too long before the Soviet Union followed suit, and then you had a nuclear standoff. So changes in, in military technology uh, obviously can affect hard power and have, and there's a continual dialectic of countries that uh, are advanced or fall behind and then recapture their position in hard power. The same is true for the economic dimensions of hard power. Countries that uh, uh, prosper economically uh, develop uh, more hard power. Britain with the Industrial Revolution, for example, or Silicon Valley today with the United States is Silicon Valley with uh, information technology. So there's a, there's a constant um, change in both economic and, uh, and military hard power. And, it's, and a lot of it is uh, affected by technology. You've mentioned um, different roles that soft power may have on different foreign policy. And I want to specifically focus on the United States. So I'd like to know, how has the US, United States foreign policy benefited from its soft power use in the past and also now? And kind of also thinking on hard power and its usage and the technology evolution, are there instances where soft power did not help in a situation where hard power was all that mattered, especially relating to United States as a whole? Well, if you, if you take the period after World War II, um, which was a clear case of a victory for hard power, American economic and military strength, uh, nonetheless, what's interesting is that uh, the Soviet Union, uh, with forces on the ground, takes over e- Eastern and Central Europe and creates its, uh, its Iron Curtain and uh, clamps down on the people behind the Iron Curtain uh, in the Cold War. Uh, in the United States, the U.S. Um, has the Marshall Plan toward Europe, which is often grants, not loans, and it allows the Europeans a fair degree of say in how they spend the money and how they uh, keep their societies organized and open. And in that sense, uh, the American position in uh, Western Europe still required hard power. You had both the American economic assistance and you also had uh, following the Marshall Plan, you had the development of NATO, the North American Treaty Organization. But what's interesting is that, that, that a lot of the American position in Western Europe was based on attraction or soft power. Uh, as a Norwegian uh, political scientist once put it, uh, the American role in Western Europe was different from the Soviet role in Eastern Europe because, in his words, it was an empire by invitation. So in that sense, uh, soft power gave the United States an additional uh, uh, strength, which uh, in Western Europe, which the Soviets didn't have in Eastern Europe. Uh, And when the Soviets uh, used military force to stop uh, the uh, 
the independence of uh, the Hungarians in 1956 or the Czechs in 1968, um, it meant their hard power prevailed, but at a great cost to their soft power. Whereas in the West, the American hard power and soft power reinforced each other. Uh, now, to go to your other question, though, uh, Americans have made mistakes of hard and soft power not reinforcing each other. I would argue that uh, the uh, war in Iraq was a case in point, where the Americans using hard power had not very much difficulty in uh, defeating Saddam Hussein's armies and uh, removing Saddam Hussein. But it did so at a considerable cost in terms of American soft power, not just in Iraq and in the Arab world, but um, in um, countries of Western Europe and, uh, and of uh, South America and so forth. And you can see this in public opinion polls at the time, um, that the United States, which was uh, attractive in countries before the Iraq war, by going into Iraq without the legitimizing force of a United Nations Security Council resolution, uh, we essentially hurt our soft power. And the polls showed this. And finally, on your point about uh, when does hard power and soft power uh, work and not work, you can have countries which have a very precise and narrow agenda uh, where soft power doesn't have much effect at all. I would think of North Korea, where the United States has been trying to discourage the North Korean nuclear weapons program for three decades now, and without any luck, or without much luck. And there's a case where uh, attracting uh, Kim Jong-un, the uh, leader of North Korea, uh, is not very likely. Uh, he's interested in the survival of his regime, and he thinks that his nuclear program is his ace in the hole, so to speak. And um, so he's not going to be attracted by American culture or assistance or other things to uh, give up his nuclear program. So uh, there's an example where uh, soft power doesn't make doesn't produce much difference. Then. Quickly going back to the point where you mentioned that for United States, soft power plays much to its advantage and strength. Beyond government efforts to promote said soft power, how do institutions and programs, especially NGOs, for example, contribute to soft power? And how essential are these institutions to sustain soft power on a global scale? Well, uh, soft power is not just a possession of states. It's a possession of anything or anybody, rather, any social entity. Um, individuals have soft power. When we look at uh, leadership in a democracy, uh, most cases in democracy, people are not hitting people over the head or paying them. Uh, they're trying to track them through words and messages and images. And the same is true for corporations. Obviously, they want to produce uh, uh, good products which attract people and provide value for the money, but uh, they also do a lot of advertising, sometimes advertising about uh, 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 issues which are not directly related to the product. 
I mean, showing that, that you're a corporation that takes climate change seriously or so forth. This is sometimes called greenwashing. But in any case, the point is that attractiveness um, uh, is, a, is something which can uh, benefit individuals and can benefit uh, corporations, can also benefit nonprofit organizations. After all, nonprofits usually don't have uh, very big budgets, and they certainly don't have very big militaries. And so their ability to get enough or to have an influence on other entities or on world politics depends on their attractiveness. So they uh, uh, will often uh, take positions on issues which are designed to attract others. Um, uh, I take Greenpeace, for example, in relation to uh, climate change, where uh, it attracts contributions and enhances its image by the positions it takes. With that said, it's worth noticing that nonprofits can threaten and uh, corporations with attacking their corporate image. Uh, in other words, if when Greenpeace attacked Shell uh, oil company uh, or its positions in the Niger Delta, for example, or when Greenpeace would sail into areas uh, with its ship prevent uh, actions. Um, this, in a sense, was um, a nonprofit which did not have a, uh, a military capacity or a large economic capacity, but could use its own reputation to damage the reputation of another entity's soft power. And uh, that gave them a bit of coercive power, the threat to... Uh, to damage uh, a company's uh, reputation, which you could measure by the effects of, on the advertising budget if you want. Um, uh, this indicates that nonprofits um, mostly use soft power, but they can use occasionally the use soft power in a coercive manner by depriving another entity of its soft power. Professor, I wanted to ask you next about China who um, is a key U.S. adversary today in the 21st century, but also has ex experienced enormous economic growth over the last couple of decades. Now, while economic growth is typically related by a lot of students as to more hard power than soft power, I wanted to ask you, what is China's relationship with soft power? And has that economic growth affected how they've also been able to develop that soft power? Well, China's economic growth, um, which has been very impressive, uh, has obviously contributed greatly to China's hard power. But there is a, a, another effect, which is that it's increased China's soft power too. When other countries look at China's performance and how it's succeeded in raising hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, uh, that makes China more attractive to them. So economic growth can have effects on hard and soft power at the same time. And that Chinese economic success has had both a positive effect on their hard power and their soft power. 
but China's overall question uh, of soft power, even though they've spent tens of billions of dollars to try to increase it, uh, public opinion polls show that China is lagging behind in in many areas. Um, for example, when you do a, a poll, something like Pew does a poll of asking people, which countries do you find most attractive? The answers in Asia and Europe show that the United States greatly outranks China. Uh, the answers in Africa come out at close to a, the same between the United States and China. Well, you might ask then, why doesn't China making this major investment um, do better in terms of enhancing its soft power? And there are really two primary reasons for that. Uh, in Asia, in, their, in its own neighborhood, one of the problems China has is that uh, it has territorial disputes with many of its neighbors. Uh, it, it has borders with something like 14 different countries and half a dozen of these include areas that are disputed as to which, who owns which piece of real estate. And, uh, that then makes it very difficult to be attractive, uh, if you are disputing another country's territory. For example, China could set up a Confucius Institute in India uh, in New Delhi to try to attract Indians with the glories of traditional Chinese culture. But if the news that's coming from the border in the Himalayas says that Chinese soldiers are killing Indian soldiers under an area that uh, India claims is its own, China claims is its own, uh, that means that you're not going to generate much soft power or attractiveness from that Confucius Institute. So China has one set of problems, which is in Asia, that it often has problems of territorial disputes with its various neighbors. Uh, if you contrast that with the United States, um, our neighbors are two big oceans and two friendly countries. Uh, so we're, the US is better placed than China on that dimension. The other problem that China has in developing its soft power is its insistence on tight Communist Party control of civil society. A good deal of a country's soft power is generated not by its government, but by the civil society. For example, American soft power is generated uh, as much or more by uh, Hollywood and American universities. Uh, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and so forth than it is by the Voice of America. Uh, and that is because there is a, uh, a basically a vibrant civil society and the government doesn't control it very much, doesn't try to control it that much. China is different in the sense that it has uh, good film producers. It has had groups that have tried to organize nonprofits and develop a civil society, but the, it insists that the Communist Party control them, and it insists that they not say or do anything which might be perceived as a threat to the party or its leadership. The net effect of this is that um, uh, it deprives itself of the creativity and attractiveness of its civil society. 
What's more, in clamping down on this civil society, it can also often damage its own soft power. Um, when Norway, for example, um, uh, hosted the Nobel Prize Committee, which granted the Nobel Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo, uh, it uh, uh, was punished by the Chinese. Uh, and uh, basically, the Norwegians could no longer sell their salmon to China. But the very fact that China was taking such a strong stand on this, that it was reinforcing its its verbal displeasure with economic sanctions uh, hurt China, in opinion, in Norway or attractiveness in Europe. So uh, China has, has, as I said, two problems. One is territorial disputes with its neighbors, and the other is insistence on tight party control on civil society. And both of these don't prevent China from having soft power, which grows out of its uh, economic success or its traditional culture or uh, it, its ability to promote itself. Um, but uh, these are limits. And despite these challenges that you just mentioned, Professor, it seems that China is still trying to build influence around the world um, through state-led economic initiatives. And one prominent one over the last couple of years is the Belt and Road Initiative. Have, has this initiative been successful thus far? And what are your thoughts on whether or not the Belt and Road Initiative will change China's grand strategy or the outlook, its outlook, especially in terms of soft power in the coming years? Well, uh, remember, the Belt and Road Initiative is not one thing. It's a series of things that are lumped together under a slogan. Um, sometimes people say it's like that. Chinese Marshall Plan, but it's not. The Marshall Plan uh, was mostly grants, and the Chinese BRI projects are mostly loans at uh, commercial or near commercial terms. But even more, um, some of the projects that China is undertaking in other countries do indeed provide attraction, uh, a nice new road to the airport or, or whatever. And that can be um, a source of attraction. But if the road is um, involves huge amounts of corruption or is not uh, useful, uh, then the soft power tends to erode. Uh, people sometimes say this is the case with the uh, uh, Mombasa to Nairobi Railway, which China built in Kenya, which uh, was then to continue on to Uganda, but the uh, but it ran out of steam, so to speak, and um, in Kenya today there is a dispute about whether the net benefits or the net costs of the railway have been greater. So sometimes a development project or an infrastructure project can have unintended uh, consequences, uh, which are negative for soft power. In addition to that, there's some projects in the Belt and Road Initiative which are really not much about soft power. I remember being at a conference in uh, in Beijing where uh, an Indian delegate uh, was being uh, criticized by the Chinese host for not, why, why didn't India do more to uh, join the BRI and support it? And the Indian uh, delegate said, 
Look, when we look at your BRI projects, we notice to the east of us the port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka, which is an economic failure. It has no real economic cause. And when we look to the west of us in Pakistan at the port of Gwador, we see another economic failure uh, where you've poured in large amounts of money but uh, not produced an economic success. And we interpret that as more of a contained India policy by putting a port on our east and on our west. And why should we support that? It doesn't produce soft power in India. So yes, BRI projects can produce soft power, but we shouldn't just assume that it's one happy program uh, across the world. Then beyond these initiatives, be it soft power or hard power, war perhaps is the ultimate test of power. One such test going right now is the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. President Zelensky has been a key figure in garnering Western military and economic support and has really turned into a symbol of hope for Ukraine. How relevant then is soft power been in Ukraine's surprisingly positive status in the war? Well, it's an interesting uh, aspect of the interaction between hard and soft power that I mentioned earlier. Um, Zelensky is an extraordinarily adept leader. Maybe he benefited from his training in, uh, in, uh, as an actor. But instead of um, retreating or uh, going into exile or hiding after the Russian invasion, he basically got on uh, social media and television and appealed to others on behalf of Ukraine, uh, uh, Ukraine, the victim of the Soviet aggression or Russian aggression. And um, that essentially enhanced the soft power of Ukraine. And then uh, the Ukrainians were able to transform that soft power into requests for weapons, which enhanced Ukraine's hard power. So uh, here's a case where um, a, an adept leader has developed soft power and then been able to cash it in for hard power. And to conclude our discussion, I wanted to ask you about what you think is the future relationship of soft and hard power um, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. I know you talked a little bit about smart power and how that combines the two. How can the U.S. use smart power to, um, to in, in the future of international relations? Well, if the U.S. Um, remembers to include soft power considerations before it takes steps, um, it can enhance its um, overall power. The, the danger is that it gets frustrated and does something unilaterally which offends others and then reduces its attractiveness uh, and makes it more expensive. Or another way of putting it is the U.S. is going to have a good deal of hard power, both economic and military, for a long time to come. But to the extent that it is able to combine it with soft power, the soft power becomes a force multiplier. It adds an additional dimension, which others uh, often cannot match. So I think the danger of the U.S. foreign policy is that we turn too unilateral or become too impatient, fail to realize that uh, it's actually through attracting others into alliances 
that we're going to be successful. And that, I think, is why soft power is going to be an important component of U.S. foreign policy in the future. Professor Nye, thank you for joining us on such an insightful discussion. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.